the Olympics started. And I don't know how many of you are, some of you watch any of the Olympics yet? Okay, it's, I, I like watching the Olympics. It's fun to watch. Uh, I like the Winter Olympics. There's cool events. Uh, one thing I haven't caught yet, and I know it's just getting started, I haven't seen any of the award ceremonies at the end where they have the podiums and, you know, they get the medals. Uh, I'm just curious, are they making them wear the masks for the award ceremonies? Any, has anyone seen that yet? Do you? Okay, I don't know. We'll have to see. They're making them wear the masks all the time. And that'd be kind of a shame. You do all this work, you get up there, and here's your time to be uh, recognized and, you know, cover your face and this, this mask. And, uh, but also because there's, you can tell a lot just by the expression on their face, uh, whether they get the, the gold, the silver, or the bronze. And there's kind of a, there's a distinction for many of these athletes when they're there. If they've gotten, you know, the first place, they get the gold medal. They're on the, the top uh, of the pyramid there. I mean, they're, they have a smile that you see that communicates, I've done it. I've, I've, it's uh, hopefully a, a sense of pride. I have done this. Right now, I have been validated that I am the best in the world at the thing that I just did right now. And these years of work... Uh, has paid off an accomplishment, and they have a smile of pride like that. If you have the silver medalist, they're next to them, and they're smiling different. They're smiling like this. Because <laughs> they're thinking, I worked really hard, and I almost got gold, but I didn't. I'm second place, but look, I'm smiling. And they're thinking, I'd like to shove this person off, and you know, so it's a whole different experience. It's almost you know, worse for them than they, if, if they weren't even up there because they realized I got so close and all this work and I came in second. And then you got the person that gets the bronze and they're up there and they're just happy. Like, oh, I'm glad I at least got something. If I would have screwed up worse, I wouldn't even be here. I would have walked away with nothing. So they're just, they're just happy to be there. So there's different levels of, I think you sometimes see in their faces uh, what's going on inside them depending on where they landed with the medals. Thinking about this, if they, had a, if they had a Christian Olympics and said, okay, who is the, the best Christian? And we're going to rank them. Who would you put on the podium for the, the Christian Olympics? And you might think of different you know, Christian heroes or uh, evangelists or missionaries. A lot of people would think, well, you know, the top spots should probably go to some of the, some of the apostles from the early church. And you got the Apostle Paul. But you also have, you know, the, uh, the original uh, apostles. And in that group, you had kind of a core three. You had Peter and James and, and John, and maybe those would be the three. And many would make a case, well, maybe it should be Peter. He seems to oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes be kind of a leader of the apostles and really have this kind of prestige. Well, I just kind of keep that in mind as we think about this. Who would, who would be in the top? And sometimes we don't like to think about that because we think, well, where would I be? You know, I would, um, you know, we're competing in this, but we think about that and we think about our comparison between us and other Christians. You know, sometimes, you know, there's probably not anyone here that thinks, yeah, I, I should be one of those top spaces. You know, and if we had that type of pride, maybe we think, well, that should disqualify us from uh, being at the, the top of the Christian Olympics. But sometimes, even for believers, it can fill our hearts with a sense of uh, shame or inferiority. We think, man, I, I haven't lived up in the Christian life the way that other Christians have lived up. Well, there's something from these first two verses in Second Peter that I think is going to speak to us all today. 
So let's uh, take a look at these verses, and I want to draw us through some points. This is just the introduction. So the letter of 2 Peter, so written by the Apostle Peter, his second letter. Read the first two verses. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So you think about Christian Olympics, who would be on top? I want to start by making what I think is kind of an amazing claim. And I want us to really think about this. But my first point, and I want to draw out of this introduction, is that if you are a believer, if you are a genuine believer, you're a born-again Christian, you have faith of equal value with the Apostle Peter. You think of the Peter's faith and what he has. And he was able to, he was able to walk on water with Jesus. He fell in after a while, but he was able to walk on water. And you think of things that God accomplished through Peter. But I want to convince you, based on these verses, that if you're a believer, you have a faith of, of equal value, equal standing with the apostle Peter. Let's think about just this introduction. It tells us a little bit uh, who is writing this. We need kind of this background so this is after the time of Jesus Christ because it's written by one of his apostles. Um, and it starts off by saying, uh, this was by, uh, this is Simeon Peter. Sometimes we're used to saying, well, isn't it Simon Peter? And in different Bibles it might still say that, but if you look at it in the Greek, it actually says Simeon Peter. The same guy. Uh, I think the, the Israelites had the tribe of Simeon. And so in uh, more Hebrew context or in uh, speaking Aramaic, it would say it as Simeon. If they were around more kind of the Greeks, they would use the Greek equivalent, which would be more Simon. But it's the same guy. And so Peter, that was his, his birth name. He was named uh, Simon or Simeon, okay? But he was given later on the name Peter. Uh, that wasn't his original name, but he was named that, Scripture tells us, by Jesus. And the name Peter uh, literally means rock, Sometimes it calls him Cephas, and that's uh, what, the same thing in Aramaic. That's the language that they spoke day to day. Uh, but Jesus, Matthew 3.16, other places, says it gave, Jesus gave him this name, Rock. And it was going to uh, tell about the person that um, the Lord was making him into and just the, uh, the rock of salvation that he would be proclaiming. It talks about him here. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is how he describes himself as well. When it says servant, it's the word doulas, which literally means slave. So he is not here putting himself above everyone else. He is saying, I am a, a slave of Jesus Christ. He is Lord to me, and I am his slave. I am the slave of him. And this is a great example for us to follow, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And if he is our Lord, it means that we are not Lord and Master. Uh, we serve him. We follow him with our lives. But he also recognizes that he is an apostle because God has uh, called him to be an apostle. Jesus called him. So we think of uh, Peter's you know, background. He had been a, a fisherman. He was chosen by Jesus first to be a, a disciple, which means a follower, 
but then not just a disciple, but one of the, the original 12 apostles. Every Christian is a disciple, it's a follower, but there were only some that were apostles. And apostle means one sent with authority. So Peter and these other apostles were given special authority. They were ones that um, you know, uh, taught with delegated authority from the Lord. Uh, Ephesians 2.20 uh, refers to them uh, as being foundations for the, for the church, with Christ as the chief cornerstone, kind of built upon their, um, their authority and their legacy, which we get because it was written down for us in Scripture, which to us is the, uh, the written authority of the uh, New Testament prophets and the, the apostles that gave us this. So he has this authority foundation of the church, now I want to pause for a little bit because there's some uh, Bible scholars uh, that would have some criticisms of this and say that, well, we know actually the Apostle Peter didn't actually write Second Peter. Say so people used to think that, you know, but we, we we're more sophisticated. We know he didn't actually write this. And they have uh, different reasons that they put forward to say this. Uh, one reason um, is because uh, and many of these critics have kind of a, well, a low view of Scripture and don't necessarily believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and uh, believe that it's kind of this, just this man-made book. But some will look at First Peter and Second Peter and say, you know, the, the style of writing here seems different. The style of Greek, there are different words that are used, and obviously it's written by two different people. But you could take two letters that you or I write at different times maybe at different times or different audiences, and we're going to use some different words. And you might even write it in a different, uh, a little bit of a different style. Plus, oftentimes when they wrote these letters, they would have a kind of a, a secretary or a helper kind of write these things down, and the Lord would kind of work through, through both of them to, to teamwork and to write these things together. So if Peter was uh, using uh, a different helper to write this, that could also uh, indicate why there's a little bit of difference in style. So I think that's not a reason to say that this is uh, something that is not by the Apostle Peter. Uh, sometimes people say they have a problem with it because if you look at chapter 2 of Second Peter and you read the book of Jude, they say there's a lot of similarities. And there really are. Uh, if you compare them you know, side by side, there are things that are repeated uh, and things that are said in the same order, not exactly the same. There are differences as well. But they say, well, it's just evidence here that one is taking from the other, and uh, therefore this really isn't written by Peter. Um, now, I think there, there could be the case that uh, maybe uh, Peter did say, hey, I like what Jude wrote, and there's some good things here. I want to add to it. I want to use this uh, as part of um, my letter that I want to communicate as well, too. There's no reason why he couldn't do that. Maybe, you know, the apostles and those that uh, went around uh, teaching in the early church, maybe there were some pretty standard presentations that they would give. And maybe they're all, they're drawing from some, you know, just common um, material that, you know, maybe most of the apostles would give warnings about false teachers that had some of these same points. And so I think that's not a reason. Some also claim, well, in the early centuries, uh, it was common to have writings that were done in the name of somebody else, but everyone knew that person didn't really write it. 
You know, there's things claiming to be from Enoch or Adam and Eve even, or, uh, you know, false things, you know, a gospel of Peter, or uh, a gospel of Peter. You know, these different writings, and they say, and some would even say, well, it doesn't even take away from, you know, the infallibility of Scripture. And we'd say, well, it seems to, because this is saying that it's Peter, and if Peter didn't actually write this, that seems to be the Bible is lying to us. But some Bible scholars would say, no, because everyone, they would have recognized, it's not it wasn't really from Peter, and everyone would have known that. Well, the truth is, it was common for people to write things in the name of, uh, you know, other heroes of the faith or people that came before or died. Sometimes those books were very heretical. Uh, And every time that those books are written that way, uh, the church always rejected those and said, that's not Scripture, so even if that was a common practice to have what's known as a pseudopigrapha, you know, these false writings, um, it, was, it was always rejected. Actually, in the second century, there was a work called the Acts of Paul and uh, Thecla. And the, uh, the uh, church leader that wrote this was like removed from his church office for pretending to write something that was from Paul. So yeah, even though it was something that people did, it was not something that people looked at and said, uh, well, this is okay, that this can still be Scripture. And I would say if this was not written by uh, Peter, and it's not just at the beginning here, all throughout it claims that this is from Peter, it's written from his point of view, then this uh, should be just torn out of Scripture because it would be full of errors and misleading to us. So I definitely believe this is, this is written by the Apostle Peter. He is teaching this to us. God is working through him. So he's the author. But also think of who it is being written to. Other letters will say it's written to the church in Colossae or something like that. And So we have the book of Colossians. This one, it's uh, more of a general letter. Sometimes they call it a, a, one of the general epistles. Epistle just means letter. But because what we see here, it's not written to a specific audience, at least as far as what is listed in the beginning of the letter itself. I mean, Peter, I think, knew who he was sending it to originally or if he was sending it out, you know, to be circulated uh, to some of the early Christians. But what he says here, look at the actual words he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And so if you think about what this is saying, this is saying this isn't written even just to that first century audience. If you are a believer, if you have your faith in Jesus Christ the Lord as your Savior, and you've obtained this faith as well, this is a letter for you. I mean, all of Scripture is for you, but this is one that it's very directly, it's saying this is for you, believers, so this is God's word, and it is, uh, the audience definitely includes us. And it says, we have obtained, or the word can mean, can receive a faith of equal standing with ours. And I think that's kind of interesting how it puts that, too. Sometimes we think about our responsibility to believe, and guess what? We do have a responsibility to believe. It, it is. We're called to believe. If you're not a believer, uh, we implore you to turn to Christ uh, repent of your sin, realize that it is wrong to rebel against God and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. And it's on you, it's your responsibility. At the same time, you look at Scripture, as believers especially, we see this, 
and we realized that it wasn't our heart that was the, what generated this faith to begin with. I mean, God had to work in our hearts to draw us to him. If he had just left us in our own sinfulness, if he had left us on the track that we were going, it, we would have stayed in that rebellion to God. But he did a work in our hearts. He did a work to, to turn us back to him, to draw us to himself. And that's why there are passages of Scripture like Romans 8, or Romans 2, 8 through 9, that tell us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work that no one can boast. And there's a real sense that our whole salvation, even including our faith, is not something that we generated with our sinful hearts, that God is working in us. And he gets credit for, for the whole thing. And he gets glory for, the, for all of it. But I wouldn't really point you to the phrase that says here, we obtained a faith of equal standing. I'm using the English Standard Version that has uh, translated as equal standing. There are different translations, and maybe you have one that uh, uses uh, a, a different translation. But really, that phrase, equal standing, there's, it's just one word in the Greek that Peter wrote this in. And the word in Greek is isotimon. That part isn't important for you to remember the actual word, but it's based on, it's a compound word. The first part of it means like or equal, and the second part of it can be translated as a value, uh, preciousness, honor, standing, kind of has all of these different ideas kind of all wrapped together. So saying that Peter is writing this to people that have obtained a faith that is of, of equal preciousness equal value, equal worth to the same faith that, that he has, that the apostles have, that the, uh, the Jewish audience that first received the message of salvation, that whether you're Jew or Gentile or whether you're an apostle or us that come uh, 2,000 years after the time of the apostles, that we have faith that is of equal value, equal honor, equal preciousness with them. The uh, King James and New King James translate it as like precious faith. Uh, the NIV says a, a faith as precious as ours. So when I think of, you know, those different terms, you know, um, you know preciousness, value, think about how precious your faith is. You know, do you have anything that is, that is more precious than that? But also, we talked about the Olympics before. And, you know, in our modern Olympics, um, you know, in ancient times they had the Olympic Games, but they gave, like, wreaths that you wear in your head. They didn't give medals. But we give these medals. And they're kind of, they go up in rank depending, you know, if you get third, second, or, or first. And the medals are, are made of this, these precious medals that are worth more and more valuable depending on how well you did. Okay. And also you have the platform you stand on, and you stand at a higher position depending how well you did. So if you're you know, in bronze, you're, you're above everyone else a little bit, and silver's higher, and gold is right in the middle above everyone else. And I realized that kind of, uh, that's interesting because it captures uh, kind of all of the meanings of kind of this word. If the word equal, it can mean equal value, equal preciousness. Okay, the equal honor, equal standing. If you get first place in the Olympics, you get a gold medal. 
And the gold is more valuable and more precious than the silver and more precious than the bronze. You also, by this, you receive more honor in the eyes of everyone looking at this. And your standing is elevated more. Even literally, you are standing higher than everyone else. And it made me realize this, that this passage is teaching us that if you are a believer, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, your standing is the same as the Apostle Peter. That we are, have received a faith of the same value, of the same level of honor. And the reason for this is not because we all have the same degree of faith. Faith means trust. We say, well, there's other people, other Christians, that they, they trust God more, they're more consistent in this, you know, they're more devoted, and so they, they must be higher, they must be better, they must have a, a better salvation. But I think what we need to realize is that, okay, it is true, we don't all possess the same strength of faith. You know, we can grow in our strength of faith, and we ought to. But the truth is that by faith, we all possess the same Christ. That is, by faith is what we use to, to grab on to Christ, to grab on to our Savior. And that if you are a Christian, whether you are the, uh, the, the most dedicated um, redwood of a, a Christian, you are solid, you are planted, or whether you feel that you are the newest or the weakest or the most fragile Christian there is, it is not ultimately about the strength of, of your faith, but it's who your faith is in. And by faith, we all have the same Christ. There's not a junior grade Christ, the Savior, for the weaker Christians. Okay? There's the same Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and Lord for all of us, and who saves us. So we think of this. We have faith of equal standing. But then back to verse 1, if we look at the last part of this, it gives us a reason why this is the case. Every believer's standing is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let me read just verse 1 again. Uh, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, or equal value, equal honor, uh, equal preciousness, equal standing, and how do we receive this? By our own good works? By what we did? By what we accomplished? No, it says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there are interpretations of this, and some, when it talks about righteousness and what does that mean, um, and people interpret it in different ways, but I think the interpretation that, that makes the most sense is that this is saying that we stand before God not based on our righteousness, but on the righteousness that is given to believers that when we trust Christ as Savior, that's what faith is, believing, trusting, receiving Him, we receive the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, that is credited to us. Now let me compare that with some other ways that sometimes uh, people that say they're Christians think of it. Some people think that salvation is about um, more like infusing or injecting Christ's righteousness into you. And so that 
you decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a Christian and I'm going to follow Jesus and I need his grace, I need his help, okay. And they think, okay, now God is going to almost like takes a big giant syringe from heaven and just starts injecting you know, into you, infusing Christ's righteousness into you so that you start to become you know, a better person and God saves you because you're getting better and you're becoming a better person. Now, we're going to see in this series, we do grow in our Christ-likeness. We do grow as Christians, and we ought to. But the way that you're saved is not by uh, the syringe from heaven injecting you with this good influence, making you into a better person. At the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, the Lord, as your Savior, there are two things that happen. And this is not an injection, it's, it's an imputation. Something is, there's a, uh, a change in what is being credited to you and what is credited to Jesus. We have our sinfulness, and that's what we are. We're sinners, we, we sin all the time, we rebel against God in all kinds of different ways. But when you trust Jesus as your Savior, your sin-bearer, that is taken and it is put on Christ's account so that when he went to the cross, he is paying for a sin that wasn't his. It's my sin, it's your sin. And he, I believe that turns to him, he's paying for our sin, not his own. He was innocent. So that is credited to his account. So he takes that debt upon himself. But it's not just that. At that moment of salvation, his perfect righteousness is credited to you, believer. So that when you stand before God... You don't stand before God and he looks at you in your filthy clothes of sinfulness. Imagine you, you just, you're, you're drenched with, with mud and with filth as a sinner. And you're like, I can't stand before a holy God like this. No, you can't. And that's what it would be like if we stayed in our sin. But when you become a believer, that is taken from you and that was put to Christ on the cross. So he dealt with it, he paid that debt. But you also don't stand before God naked. Instead, you stand before him, believer, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That he gives you his, his robes of perfect righteousness. Credit for his perfect life, his perfect law-keeping. He is the only one that has kept God's law perfect from beginning to end. He came into this world with no sin debt. He never acquired any sin debt because he never sinned. And he fulfilled all God's law. And that is credited to you, and you wear that. You receive his righteousness. Now think of this. If it was a matter of, you know, standing before God because of, you know, this infused or injected righteousness, well, maybe you would have a little bit different than somebody else. Maybe they have more injected in in, in them, or you have more injected in you than somebody else. And you can feel pretty good about that, and, you know, I rank above them, and I'm going to, I'm going to, have a better place in the Christian Olympics. But think about this. If the real reason why you stand, why you can stand before God, and the only reason is because you stand in the righteousness of Christ, the only type of righteousness that you can have credited to you is his perfect righteousness. If it was credited to you like just half of his righteousness, if it was credited to you, well, he did 90% right uh, but he sinned 10% of the time. That wouldn't make any sense. The only righteousness that stands before God is, is perfect righteousness. 
If you break the law in one respect, you've, you've broken the law. It's like a chain. If you break the chain in one place, that, that's a broken chain. Christ kept the law perfectly. It's credited to you. So realize this. Okay, if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling inferior to, to other Christians, if you're wondering, where do I stand in the old Christian Olympics? Do you realize what this means? Before God, it means that we all stand on the same level, same level, same standing, same value as the Apostle Peter. Because as many great things as he did, and as much as he was one of the pillar of the church and all of this, he doesn't stand before God based on any good things that he did. He stands before God ultimately because of the righteousness of Christ credited to him. If you are a believer, if you've asked Jesus Christ, you're depending on him as your Savior, it's that exact same righteousness is credited to you. You can't have half of it. That doesn't even make sense. That means every believer equal standing. That we're all standing at the top level with Peter, with the righteousness of Christ, all together, same level. That you, Christian here, are the winner of the Christian Olympics. Not because of you, because of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it's not that you stand there because of, ooh, I'm the same as the Apostle Peter. That's not the point. It's the same as Jesus Christ and his perfect life. It's his gold medal that he puts around your neck that is given to you as a gift that you have received. This changes our life. This changes our, our thinking. And for a sense, we all stand on the top platform with Peter because of the righteousness of Christ. In this passage, too, we think of who Christ is. I mean, he was the, the perfect man. He lived a perfect life as a human being, but he wasn't just a human being. Notice it says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is a very clear reference to Jesus Christ being God. That he is the God-man, fully God. He's always been fully God. And when he came to earth, he also became a human being, fully God and fully man. And when it says here that the righteousness of our God and Savior, you could almost put like hyphens between God and Savior, that this is one person that this is talking about. Kind of like if you said, I went to Washington, D.C., and I met the president and commander-in-chief. Okay, it's not that you met the president, and then you met somebody else that's commander-in-chief, like two different people. It's one person that is both of these things. And if we said, I'm at the president and the commander-in-chief, there might be a little confusion. Is that two different people? But the way this is written in Greek, it's something called the Granville Sharp Rule. And it's just the way that it's written, kind of with a, kind of one article, it means that, that it is referring to Jesus Christ as the, the one that is both God and Savior. It's not there's God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God and Savior. And it's been demonstrated according to the rules of the Greek language. This is what Peter meant. And so when we stand before uh, God, when we, we, we uh, think of this, we worship Jesus, this isn't the righteousness of a mere man. This is the, the God-man. He lived a perfect life as a man, but this is God uh, working on our behalf. So think about this. We might have different levels of, of, of faith. You might be growing in your trust, okay? But what ultimately matters, as far as standing before God, 
What ultimately matters is not the strength of your trust, but the strength of what you are trusting, and specifically who you are trusting. Don't be trusting in your works. That is going to uh, be a failure, but trust in Jesus Christ. And then it, it doesn't matter. If you are out on a lake, and it's, you know, um, a frozen lake, and, you know, there's a foot of ice out there, you may have somebody that realizes, man, this lake is going to hold me. I could, you know, be driving a, a truck out here, and it's going to be fine. You may have somebody else that goes out there, and they are scared. They're like, I'm going to fall through the ice. They don't have a lot of trust. What ultimately matters is not your level of, level of confidence. It's the objective level of the ice that is going to hold you. And over time, you realize, wait, I don't have to be scared. I, I'm firm in the, the confidence that I have in here because of what I stand on. So believer, you stand on Jesus Christ and his righteousness for you. And that's a game changer. And in verse 2, I want to point out that true knowledge of God will enhance your anchor. So we have stability. We have confidence based on the righteousness of Christ, but we can grow in this as well. Verse 2 says, and this is part of the normal greeting, mostly, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's pretty common in the letters to have, you know, wish that, give them grace and peace. What's kind of unique is he says, may it be multiplied to you. Things are multiplied. They're, they're increased, you know, manifold. You're increasing quite a bit. Saving faith gives equal salvation for all believers because we have the same Christ, the same Christ that saves us. However, there's ways we can grow in our faith in our Christian life too. And the grace and peace that we experience, we can grow in this. There's not, there's different types of grace. It's not just the grace that just gets you into heaven. There's, there's more grace that we have that, uh, that does change us, where we do grow. And this is something that is going to enhance uh, just even the level of peace that we have. Peace before God, a, a sense of wholeness, a sense of stability before him. As we look at this letter of Second Peter, and I hope that you take some time to read ahead, think through it. You might even want to have it where you can underline stuff, where you can you know, print it off. There's a few things that you're going to notice that I want you to be looking for. Uh, one is this uh, theme of knowledge that it talks about. We see it here. It multiplied you in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And this isn't just talking about some kind of head knowledge. I mean, it is. There's intellectual, there's truths, propositions we need to know. But it's also personal knowledge. Uh, knowledge of experience as well, too. Knowing God, knowing what he's like, knowing what pleases him. All of these different things that are part of how we do have grace and peace multiplied to us. But through this letter, you're going to see two themes. And, you know, if you were working through this, you could take two different uh, type of highlighters. You could, you know, underline or circle and look for these two themes in Second Peter. One is stability and the other is knowledge. Stability and knowledge. So stability, you look for words like established, confirm or confirmed, never fall. Many of those are actually from the same Greek word. So you can see these quite a bit. And then you'll see words as far as knowledge, truth, um, remind, recall, knowing. It's going to talk about the prophetic word. The word of God is our foundation. 
We'll talk about scripture in this series, and it's not just the invention of human beings, but it's given by God. And it'll contrast that with the false teachers and the false prophets as well. And so we're going to see some of this. So just to give you a little bit of a preview, and this is the reason I ended up calling the series the subtitle, Set Firm in the Knowledge of God, that we're established, we're confirmed, we're set firm, we have stability through the knowledge, through the truth of God, knowing Him, knowing what He's like, knowing what He's revealed to us. And these go through the whole letter. We saw it in verse 2. As we move on, we're going to see it next week in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. We're going to see later on in uh, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth. Okay, we're established, we're set firm in the truth and the knowledge that is of God. And then, I think this is real helpful as we come to the end of this message. We're doing the introduction, but if we look at the end of the whole letter, we can see, okay, it might seem like it's winding through different things and it's going to talk about false prophets for a while and it's going to talk about end times and a lot, a lot of different things. But the main point, I think that what Peter is trying to teach us through this, if we look to the end, we see what some of it is. So the way this letter ends, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. Okay, lose being set firm, lose your, your, your anchor, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So you see these themes throughout it, that the more we know God, we know his word, we know what he teaches us, we're going to grow in this stability. And Christians are stable because of this. The false teachers, they're going to be washed away. They don't have the stability. That's the difference. And we live in a world with all kinds of false teaching that we ought not follow, we ought not listen to. But God has given us a sure faith. He's given us sure truth and is anchored in the word of God that he has given to us. The word of God that is, that is made sure for us. I look forward to this series. I look forward to talking about this. And we see at the beginning here, Christian, whether you feel you are the weakest Christian whether you feel that you are the poorest excuse for a Christian, you have the same Jesus Christ. And you have the same righteousness as the most mature Christian who has ever lived. You have the same righteousness as Jesus. Trust in that. Stand firm in that. If you're not a Christian, that's what you could have. Turn to Jesus uh, before you leave this room. And, and you can have that. No one gets to heaven by trying to be a good person. doesn't work except what Jesus did for you as substitute. And then we're going to see there are ways we grow. The rest of Second Peter is going to be talking about this. But we have to acknowledge that at the core, the faith that you have, because of who it is in, is of the same value, worth, and standing as the Apostle Peter himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that were written to us, that were inspired by you, that you gave to the Apostle Peter to write down. 
Lord, may we believe these things because it is not just the, the opinion of a, a man, uh, but is you speaking uh, through Peter, through your scripture to us, Lord God, by the Holy Spirit. Apply this to our hearts. Help us to realize that our standing before you is never going to be based on our good merit. If it was, we have all been disqualified long ago, irredeemably disqualified, and we wouldn't even be qualified to even participate in the the Christian Olympics. But by your grace, not only are we able to participate, but we are declared the instant winners. And it's not because of our performance in our life, but it's the performance of Jesus Christ and what he earned and his medal that he hangs around our neck. And so, God, we thank you so much. This humbles us, and it gives us courage, and it gives us hope. We look to you, and we give all glory to Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.